from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Always eyes watching you and the voice enveloping you, asleep or awake, indoors or out of doors, in the bath or bed, no escape. Nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters in your skull. You may recognize this quote from the novel 1984, written by George Orwell after World War II. The story is about a man living in a totalitarian megastate that subjugates and terrorizes its citizens using constant surveillance as a tool. The state listens to everyone's calls, watches its citizens, monitors all interactions, and encourages citizens to report one another on even the slightest hint of deviance from accepted norms. Of course, these ideas were not new. If you're a literary buff, before Orwell, there was a book called We that was written in 1923 by Yevgeny Yamzatin, which describes a state where everyone lives in glass apartments and is constantly surveilled and monitored. This specter of surveillance and the fear of totalitarian panopticon states has been a part of human culture since the earliest glimmers of information technology have existed. Now in 2013, if you'll recall, the world got its first bitter taste of what this Orwellian future might mean. When Edward Snowden, a private government contractor who was working for the National Security Agency, or the NSA, copied and leaked thousands of highly classified documents about the global surveillance programs being run by governments. Now, what was unique about these programs is they involved governments paying private corporations for access to emails, records, logs, transactions, and other private information about citizens. The breadth and depth of the surveillance state spanning not just the U.S., but Europe, was not really fully appreciated until it was revealed by Snowden in this act of defiance that was also very decidedly cypherpunk. Now, China is probably the biggest instance of this, at least as it's reported in the media. China, over the last couple of years, has introduced a social credit scoring system, centralized, of course, by the state. This also has a feature that allows citizens to receive alerts when they're close, to, when they're physically near or close by another person who's overdue on their debt so that they can publicly shame them. Just this week, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, also disclosed that a massive database leak has given us a window into China's digital surveillance state. This database has been live tracking the locations of about 2.6 million residents of a certain region of China, collecting everything from details about their bike rentals to when they've gone to a church or a mosque or a hotel or a police station. As you might have guessed, this week, we're diving deep into the rise of surveillance capitalism and its slow and steady creep into the Bitcoin community and what that might mean for all of our crypto libertarian dreams of privacy. Jill, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this topic and I have a lot of frustration and anger, so it's going to be a feisty one. <laughs> Let's light those fires. Let's dive in. <laughs> Let's grind some gears. All right. So Jill, here we are. We're going to talk about surveillance capitalism. Do you know what surveillance capitalism actually means? Uh, it's a pretty new phrase to my lexicon anyway, but my sense is that it is, it is what it sounds like, right? It's the use of people's data as a commodity, uh, as something that can be traded and used uh, and potentially even weaponized in, in the act of surveilling them. 
That is totally right. And I want to give a shout out to Shoshana Zuboff, who just published a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. She's probably done the most writing on this phrase. Um, She's a professor at Harvard. Highly recommend reading some of her essays and academic white papers, not ICO white papers, (laughs) academic white papers. The real Um, kind. The real kind. Well, it's still in LaTeX font, you know, so it's legit. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but let's dive right in. So when we say surveillance capitalism, really, as Jill described, what we're describing is a new form of capitalism where we commodify behavioral and experiential data. And this really was pioneered by all of the companies that emerged um, during the internet boom of 1999 and 2000. So Google was really the first to pioneer it, and later Facebook And I think what's shocking to people, and hopefully we'll delve into a bit here, is this is used by nearly every technology company. So we're going to delve into some of these business models. But really, let's go back to why this happened. I think this is good context for why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are so interesting. So if you think about the rise of the internet and the movement of social life, uh, commercial activity, human experience, it's moving from physical space to digital space. And what that has done is two things. Um, Number one, it's really difficult for nation states to monitor this new and nearly limitless frontier. Like the internet is massive and it's a wild west and there's constantly new tech. So intelligence agencies and governments, you know, they can no longer restrict people's digital movement. Um, Maybe they can monitor and restrict physical movement, but this new frontier is really difficult for them to grapple with. And then more importantly, corporates um, need to implement new business models. So we see this with the demise of brick and mortar stores. Uh, Sears just went bankrupt is a great example. You see it with the demise of journalism as well. Agreed. And actually, there is, uh, there's a lot of ties between sort of the paywalling of journalism and the demise of democracy, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but really, what we see now is the primary business model is for online companies to provide free or low-cost products and services to their users. They gather that data, and then they sell that data. And they don't just sell it to advertisers, but they sell it to governments. Um, They sell it to uh, pharmaceutical companies. They sell it to credit card companies. What this is, is we have created a marketplace that trades in predictions of future behaviors. So what's really interesting about this, just to hop in for a second, Mm -hmm. is that we don't tend to think of data as an asset, but that's exactly how it's being used. Our data has a value, it's being traded around, it's being moved around, and it's being commoditized. And so this is a huge paradigm shift in the way that we have to think about what has value and how we conceive of data having value. But what's interesting to me, right, you think about futures markets. Basically, what surveillance capitalism is, is a prediction market or futures market for behavior. And so companies are going to take this data, they're going to buy all these different data sets, they're going to try to connect them using key identifiers, and then they're going to use what they know to influence our behavior. Because that's called capitalism, baby, Uh, (laughs) which is... Does that not horrify you, Jill? It doesn't. It doesn't. You know, to me, there are aspects of this that are as old as time, right? You know, you can go back to uh, propaganda in ancient Rome. You can go back to the early days of modern advertising. And a lot of that is just all about trying to influence behavior, what what's worrying to me about this though is that the ways in which this are this phenomenon is happening that are very much below the surface and that people mm-hmm. seem to not even realize and that frequently it seems like corporate entities are even lying to our faces about So really what you describe here is a word I think is defining for me and that word is consent Right. So consent to me is critical. So let's talk about a few examples. I know we both have some that really just grind our gears, um, but let's help our listeners this week understand how their data is being used. So I'll start. Um, So it's really funny is 
my mom was all excited about 23andMe, right? 23andMe was started by Susan Wojcicki, who, by the way, um, was at YouTube and Google. And you think the business is buying these fun little DNA kits. I think they're 150 bucks or something. And you swab your cheek and you send the little cheek swab back. And 23andMe sends you a little report that tells you, you know, you're like 5% European. In my case, I'm probably 30% Arab, 50% Turkish or Turkic people. There's probably a little bit of Mongolian or Asian in me. Um, But what their real business is, so they're selling these fun little kits. That's not going to make them money. What makes them money is they use your genetic fingerprint. So you have just given them the most intimate details about who you are at a molecular, biological, atomic level. And they're taking your data and they're selling it to insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. And recently, they've been giving it to police investigating crimes when they're subpoenaed. And the problem is, is they don't make it clear that that's what they're doing. Absolutely not. But if you think about it, right, say that someone in your family commits a crime, right, and the police search their DNA database and they don't find your family member, they can then go to 23andMe, subpoena their records, or I don't know if their relationship at some point will become a commercial one, um, and they buy these records, and they then find you. You may be in a situation where your own genetic material that you paid to submit to this database is used to convict a member of your family in a crime. That's right. Uh, wh- what's that quote? There's there's something that people who work in this space tend to say around, well, we no longer have to surveil people anymore because they're just handing us over the data. In fact, they're paying us to take it from them. It, it boggles, it just boggles my mind. And people don't seem to think it's a problem. Anyways, another my- really extreme <laughs> example of this that comes to mind with a piece of technology that so many people just use, they have around in their house, they think it's cool, they think it's fun, is Alexa. So how many people do you know who, you know, when they walk in the door now, Alexa lights on first thing they yeah, say? Yeah, I, I am in an Alexa-capable home and it's terrifying. Tell me you're not hooked up to it. Because what really gets me is- Alexa's beeping at me right now. She's she's. <laughs> Oh, the little lights are going off. She heard her name. heard her name. She heard her name. Well, unplug that, Meltem, because last fall, Amazon was ordered by court order to hand over Alexa evidence in a double murder case. So this was in, I believe it was in the UK. Um, and there was a double murder case where two women were stabbed multiple times and a man was charged in that case. And it was believed that Alexa had recorded uh, evidence that could be used against this man in the court of law. Now it's, it's not clear. I'm sorry. It was in, uh, yeah, it was in the UK. Now it's not clear how this is all panned out. Uh, I don't actually think that the case has gone through yet, although I could be wrong. I haven't, I haven't updated myself on this recently, But Amazon said to the request that they will, quote, not release customer information without a valid and binding legal demand properly served on us. Now, the scary thing to me here is who's to say what that valid and binding legal demand is? You know, people in jurisdictions all over the world have Alexas in their home. Now, if a jurisdiction that has a history of human rights abuses serves Amazon with that demand, then what happens? But Joel, here's the other thing. It's not just Alexa. It's, you know, I'm looking at my house right now. I have an Alexa, which we've started unplugging. Oh, she's talking back now. Um, I have an Apple HomePod. I have canaries in my house. If you own a Nestor canary, what these are home security cameras, right? And people were buying them. And actually, my par- partner worked at Canary, so I learned a lot about home security and home monitoring. What's insane is people were buying these devices, and they didn't know these things had microphones in them and speakers in them until they turned on these features. And the company was like, oh, we're going to turn on this cool feature. No, what you've just done is you have sold these devices to millions of people who put them in their homes. They're filming their children's bedrooms, their own bedrooms, the most intimate spaces of their personal lives. And they don't even know that there's listening capabilities in these things. If that doesn't scare you, if that doesn't violate the most basic tenets of consent, 
I just, I don't get that. Exactly. And I want to correct something I just said. It was actually in the US and New Hampshire that this Amazon case took place. But to be clear, you know, I don't really have a problem with evidence being used from Alexa in the case of this double murder. Like to me, that actually sounds kind of reasonable, but it's exactly the issue that you just said of people haven't given their consent to be recorded. Um, People haven't given their consent for Amazon to collect data on what they're doing in their day-to-day lives because they're not- If they have, Jill, they're not aware of it, right? It's buried so deep in the T's and C's of the contract. Like, I'm going to bring up (laughs) something really gross but funny. Do you ever watch South Park? I have. Okay. Do you remember the episode of South Park um, called The Human Centipede? Oh my God. I I don't remember that episode of South Park, but I'll be honest, I had a sleepover, I think in the 11th grade with a bunch of girls in my high school class. And we stayed up late watching the movie, The Human Centipede, like the original movie, the horror film. I have never once wanted to do that, but here's the thing. So (laughs) South Park spoofs the movie, right? But the way, um, and Stan gets caught up in it and he gets like in this human centipede situation. But the way it happens is he's using iTunes and he is updating his iTunes on his little phone and the terms and conditions comes up. And like everyone else, he just scrolls through it and clicks accept. And what he doesn't realize is there's a clause in the terms and conditions (laughs) that say that he can be used by Apple for experimentation. And that's how he gets into this situation. (laughs) And what's so funny is Stan's looking at everyone when they take him away. He's like, why is this happening to me? And everyone's like, dude, did you not read the T's and C's? And he's like, no, who reads that stuff? (laughs) And it's just It was so disgusting, but also just so poignant because I think, again, um, it's easy to say we have consent in someone's signature, but do you really if they don't understand what they're signing off on? And it comes down to a matter of trust, right? As with so many things that we talk about on this podcast in finance, in cryptocurrency, it all comes back to trust. And inherently, people tend to trust big name corporates like Amazon, like Apple, et cetera. But- Really, you know, if if you're not verifying what what you're entering into, what these contracts are you're entering into, then you've lost control of your data and potentially of your own sort of uh, self self empowerment, self will. So, so I have one more example. I think you have one more. Um, so one that's really recent that I think's horrifying. So location services on your phone, right? In a way, you need location services. Actually, Uber doesn't work if you don't have it on. You need it for Find My Phone. But if it's on, Google and other mapping services providers are now giving police data. If you've been near a crime scene and they can't find evidence or any um, people who were, you know, Uh, around the crime scene, then what they'll do is they'll find people who had location services on who were near the crime scene, and they can actually come and subpoena your phone. Now, what that means is they don't just have access to you, but what they can do is take your phone and use it um, for interrogation evidence review. So think about if you're in a state and you own crypto on your phone, or you use an encrypted messaging app you can very quickly, even though you have services on your phone and you've taken precautions to protect your privacy, that can be compromised within an instant just because you made the stupid decision to leave location services on. My, right? my it's favorite like these instance, slippery slopes. My favorite instance of location services was when suddenly last year everyone realized that Strava, which tracks cycling, running, basically any kind of outdoor workout, default publicly records your activity publicly. I'm not just talking about it being stored on Strava servers. And so you could look at the Strava maps and figure out the outline, the perimeters of military bases around the world where the soldiers were going on Strava runs around the bases. It's like, wake up, everyone. But the last thing that I want to mention is around financial privacy, because I love to talk about and... Uh, criticize all of these technology companies, right, for infringing upon our privacy. But actually, if you're using a credit card to buy things, then you are handing over your data to one of the most, I think, uh, powerful entities in terms of monetizing that. Like Facebook, they sell you ads, but they, they sell ads rather, but they don't actually sell your data directly. Credit card companies 
actually sell your data. And in 2017, Google introduced a new tool for ad buyers that connected consumer credit card data and their purchases with the ads that they were served to make it easier for them to demonstrate the link between Google marketing a product or service on its platform and the end customer spending money there. So when you start to combine the credit card companies with the big tech giants, that's where, to me, things get really scary and we really get into the bowels of surveillance capitalism. Oh, yeah. It's like um, me and my partner sitting in our room. Alexa's on. In- Instagram was open for him. He had never searched mattresses. We we're talking about buying a new mattress. He had never searched for mattresses online. But all of a sudden, he opens his Instagram and there are mattress ads. How did that connection happen? So I, I'm, I'll be honest. I'm a huge conspiracy theory about this. I love to believe that our phones are listening to us because I've had many of these instances crop up myself. But actually, the more I've learned about it, and the more that I've spoken to, for example, machine learning engineers at Facebook, the more I actually believe that they don't have the technology or the storage capabilities or the data cleaning capabilities. <laughs> <laughs> to do that and to do it in real time, but It'll we'll just go be conspiracy. We'll in go my with the conspiracy <laughs> theory because, yeah. Okay, but hold on, hold trails, Melton chemtrails. <laughs> okay, but here, here's really what we want to get to, right? So this is what the result of capitalism is. But fundamentally, what these things end up doing, they result in a loss of privacy for citizens. And there are three types of privacy that I think we've just highlighted. The first is privacy and communications. So do we have the right to communicate privately? And you'll recall in the 80s, encryption was considered to be a weapon. Encryption in many countries, they tried to ban it because they didn't want people to have access to private communications. Mm -hmm. So one is privacy and communication. Two is privacy in transactions and economic interactions, which to me is what the credit card example and all these things get back to. And the third, which I think is really critical as well, is privacy in movement. So being able to go for walks, exist in places without having every movement surveilled. That's it. Yeah, I would agree. And I mean, if you go back in history, again, recent history, you were talking about the 80s and the dynamics around all of this. I want to talk about the 90s and something that people in cryptocurrency love to talk about, which is (laughs) the cypherpunk movement. Um, Yep. So, Melton, you've read the Cypherpunk Manifesto, I'm guessing. I So, I'm a little cheesy. Um, you can't really be in Bitcoin, in my view, without having read the Cypherpunk Manifesto. It takes about five minutes to read. I've bookmarked it. I read it probably at least once a month. You we nerd. have it linked. <laughs> I'm a loser. We knew that, though. So, <laughs> is anyone surprised? <laughs> but, okay, I want to read one quote because it actually gives me chills every time I read it. And to me... Um, you know, look, our podcast called What Grinds My Gears, <laughs> you and I, Jill, we get worked up, we get like hopped up about some of the dumb stuff that goes on in crypto. But there's a reason I'm here. And I think um, to me, this quote really helps me recenter in times when I feel frustrated why this is so important to me personally. And I think it should be important to many other human beings. Um, so here's the quote. We must defend our own privacy if we expect to have any. We must come together and create systems which allow anonymous transactions to take place. People have been defending their own privacy for centuries with whispers, darkness, envelopes, closed doors, secret handshakes, and couriers. The technologies of the past did not allow for strong privacy but electronic technologies do. We, the cypherpunks, are dedicated to building anonymous systems. We are defending our privacy with cryptography, with anonymous mail forwarding systems, with digital signatures, and with electronic money. This was written in 1992. And look at how far we've come since then. But just think about this, like... We are all a little bit cypherpunk. When you decide to turn off location services, that is an active defiance. When you decide not to submit your genetic data to a database and pay for it, that is decidedly cypherpunk. I think what's important about this is like everyone in the world, no matter of how technically skilled you are, it's not about being an engineer. This is about... Um, defending this and upholding this, right? I'm never going to code something um, for crypto. That's just not a good use of my skill set. But Meltem, cypherpunks write code. 
No, but cypherpunk is like, it's a way of thinking, right? It's like we say we are Satoshi and Bitcoin. It means being cognizant of all of these violations of privacy. It's people who go to courts of the highest laws of the land and advocate for privacy. Like this war is being fought on many different frontiers and every single person has to participate to fight for rights. I don't know that I actually agree with that. I look, I, I love the cypherpunk manifesto as much as the next crypto weirdo. I have location services turned off on my phone. I do not own an Amazon Alexa. I, Literally got into a fight with my mom when she participated in 23andMe when she used the service. But I also am realistic about the extent to which the average person cares about their privacy. And the reality is it's not that much. It's not until shit really hits the fan. It's not until you're living in a surveillance state and that's actually having consequences on your day-to-day life that for most people, they'll start to really care. And I think that if privacy is something that we as a group of individuals, as an industry, as whatever it is, as a society value, then it's about creating tools that defend our privacy that the average person can use without reading the cypherpunk manifesto, without caring about their privacy. And I think WhatsApp, free Facebook acquisition, who knows what's going on with it now, and and FaceCoin and whatever else is going on. But hot damn Jill. I think that WhatsApp is a great example of this. WhatsApp is on more phones around the world than any other application, right? And WhatsApp provides end-to-end encryption. WhatsApp uses the uh, open whis- whisper systems signal protocol. WhatsApp, at least in theory, we can't actually audit the code anymore, but provides that privacy to billions of people globally. And so that, to me, that is truly cypherpunk because it's incepted it. It's gotten on the inside of people's phones without them even having to care. Okay. So I actually think we're agreeing here, but I want to go to the topic we want to talk about, which is Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin came out of this cypherpunk movement and really cypherpunks were a starting point for many of the ideas that comprise Bitcoin's core promise, its code, its design. Think of, you know, Adam Back and Hashcash. Think of Whitfield Diffie. A lot of these cypherpunks um, that were there in the 90s looking at the web developing and saying we need to defend privacy are now obviously, um, also working in various fields of cryptography, but especially Bitcoin and digital money. So while the idea of privacy sounds good, I think the last 10 years of the Bitcoin experiment have been really disappointing in regards to privacy. So do you want to dive into that? So Bitcoin was born out of this movement, the cypherpunk movement. But here's the thing about Bitcoin is it's not actually anonymous. It's pseudonymous. Jill, I actually think this is the biggest misperception is people are like, oh, Bitcoin is anonymous. And uh, it's not not true at all. Exactly. And and this gets into confusion when people start talking about trying to put medical records on a blockchain, this and that. These things that you really don't want to put onto a public ledger, because that's right, folks, the blockchain is a public ledger. Anyone can access it, anyone can download it, anyone can audit it. But since the earliest days of the Bitcoin community, people have been trying to take measures to protect their own privacy when it comes to that public ledger. This means delinking themselves, decoupling their real world identities from their blockchain. Bitcoin, public keys, and addresses. But also, since the earliest days of the Bitcoin community, people have also been building tools to de-anonymize these Bitcoin users and link those blockchain pseudonyms or wallet addresses with real people and real world identities, places, names. Right. And I think this is where the best example um, is block explorers, right? So I've talked a little bit in the past about the shitcoin waterfall. We don't need to delve into it. But one of my favorite games to play the summer of 2018 was watching um, Etherscan. So Etherscan is an Ethereum blockchain and smart contract explorer. So basically is an abstraction layer that makes it easy for you to look at activity on the public Ethereum ledger. So all of these ERC-20 tokens that were issued were smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. So what I'd do is I'd find the contract for a large token sale, say, you know, 
EOS, for example, because it's first issued in ERC-20. And I would actually be able to go to the original issuance of that token, particularly with these massive pre-mines. And you could see the contract being created, then you could see the uh, tokens from that contract move from the issuer's wallet to the wallets of the ICO or SAFT or pre-sale investors. Then you could actually identify uh, wallets receiving large amounts of tokens and then from there watch the coins move to exchanges. And actually most exchange wallets have now been de-anonymized, meaning you can easily go and look at them and see who's moving coins into and out of these wallets. And this is one of the unique features that I think makes cryptocurrencies useful. But when you start to also sell surveillance tools, again, this idea of surveillance capitalism to governments, to exchanges, to service providers, um, this is really harmful to privacy. And so um, there are, of course, tools you can use that I think people don't understand. Like you can go to Etherscan right now or the blockchain.info block explorer for Bitcoin or a number of others, and you can see all of this data. That's right. You can see it with your own eyes. You don't even need to run some advanced algorithm that is, you know, trying to You don't even need to run a node. You don't even need to run a node. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, It's something that anyone can log in and do. And you know, not necessarily link the identities one-to-one exactly, but you can probably figure out a lot of what's going on just by just by looking at what's going on on Etherscan or another block explorer. And as you said, there are tools that people use. So like Wasabi Wallet is an example. There are mixers, tumblers, other programs to obfuscate the flow of funds. There are obviously cryptocurrencies that are focused on privacy solutions like Zcash, like Monero, so on and so forth. But the ability for cryptocurrency users to stay private is only secondary to the ability for companies to build business models violating this privacy so that they can sell data to exchanges, regulators, and enforcement agencies. And I think that one of the most interesting examples of of all of this that we're talking about when it comes to cryptocurrency is that of the Silk Road. And a lot of people don't know this whole story about the Silk Road bust. Katie Hahn has done a really nice job detailing it since she was Mm. one of the people who lived it. But Meltem, I don't know if you want to launch in and and start (laughs) to tell the story. So this was really my intro. This is when I got into uh, Bitcoin, um, was during the heyday of Silk Road. And watching this unfold um, while I was at MIT in grad school is fascinating. So um, a lot of this is taken from um, comments and interviews that have been done with Katie Hahn for background. She's on the board of Coinbase. She's now investing at Andreessen Horowitz. But she led the task force at the Department of Justice Cybercrimes Division that was prosecuting cases involving the criminal use of cryptocurrencies. And obviously, the biggest case was that of Silk Road and Ross Ulbricht. So the whole Silk Road case, you can go read online, you can go read about what's happening with Russ and all of that. But what I want to talk about is while the case was being worked by two agents, um, by these agents, pardon, there were two of them that were actually stealing Bitcoin from Ross and stealing two Bitcoin from Two of the from agents, them. to clarify. This is not Silk Road actors. These are two of the federal agents cracking down on the case. And here's Bitcoin. What, here's what's interesting is when... Um, DOJ went to banks, right, traditional financial institutions and said, hey, we need the bank accounts of these people. We need to see money being sent. The banks were not willing to supply information. They wanted um, subpoenas. They wanted all of these court documents. And they dragged their heels and they took forever. And in some cases, they just tried to not respond. But here's the thing. The way that the DOJ got data was from these public block explorers and the cryptocurrency community. So they basically, the IRS, FBI, Homeland Security, they went to Um, blockchain.info, which was the most widely used explorer uh, for the Bitcoin blockchain at the time. And they just started looking at the movement of these coins from the uh, Silk Road wallets and seeing where they went. And we'll link this in the show notes. Pretty amazing story. So here's what the Silk Road case revealed, though. They were able to track it down. They were able to prosecute prosecute these agents and get them convicted because of these public ledger records. But once regulators, and most importantly, once enforcement figured out that they could pressure private companies in the crypto space for information, the floodgates opened. And this is what I lived in my early days at Digital Currency Group, where we were investing in a ton of exchanges, is there was this thing called the Blockchain Alliance that was formed that crypto exchanges would join, where they actually coordinated on surveillance and monitoring. And in a way, this was helpful 
A lot of exchanges were getting an excess of 100 subpoenas a day from different law enforcement agencies. In a way, it also helped exchanges work together to define some of that moral hazard around what to submit, not to submit. It's also helped people identify known hacker addresses um, and limit their ability to move funds once they're transferred into the platform. And the Quadriga case is a great example. But there's also a lot of negative examples. And I want to talk about the IRS John Doe summons because I don't think most people People know about this. I remember this. <laughs> yeah. Do you get the email? <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, Jill, this ground my gears um, so much beyond belief. Since I explained, people are probably tired of my voice. Do you want to grind some gears with this John Doe summons? Yeah. So in 2016, the IRS filed yeah, a John Doe summons with Coinbase wherein they requested the data and records of all consumers who transferred Bitcoin between 2013 and 2015 using that platform. So a John Doe summons, to clarify, is an order that doesn't specifically identify the person that they're looking for, that the feds are looking for, but rather identifies a person or group or class of individuals by their activities. So it's a by blanket the, by, summons. And by the way, the way this gets scary is, um, in this case, it was people who used Coinbase between these dates and moved Bitcoin in and out because they were trying to catch people for tax evasion using crypto. That's right. But in the future, it could be something like their gender. It could be living in a particular part of the country. It could be other demographic data. So I just want to make that connection. Again, yeah, all of these things, they get scary when you start to think about living in a state where there are human rights violations happening, where freedoms are really limited, where there isn't trust between people in the state. And for many listeners, that might be the United States. For me personally, I'm not that worried about the IRS going fishing, but exactly, it's it's when you start to extrapolate it to these more extreme cases. So the IRS issued this John Doe summons to Coinbase. And they were initially seeking all records, including third-party information related to any Bitcoin transactions in or out of Coinbase between those years, 2013 and 2015. Coinbase took them to court. Yeah. Right. But the scale, though, so what the IRS wanted was 9 million transactions that touched Coinbase and the data on 15,000 account holders. And what's crazy is the information they wanted included, I'm just going to list it off, so user profiles, user preferences, security settings. Like, do you have 2FA on, right? Um, Payment methods, funding sources, but more importantly, um, the date, the amount, and type of transactions, the names or identifiers related to those transactions. So if you put notes in a transaction you sent, they got one of those. Um, Any requests or instructions and any related correspondence with support. Basically, they wanted everything under the sun that they could pull out. And to Coinbase's credit here, they took them to court. So they went to court for two years. And after a two-year battle, they eventually did turn over some of this targeted information. They provided a limited set of records from that 9 million subset that they were initially looking for. And only for users who had $20,000 or more of activity in one year. And for those people, just to list it off again, they disclosed taxpayer ID number, name, birth date, address, records of account activity, and all periodic statements of account or invoices or equivalent from the site. So I think what's important here is um, here's an example, right, of a government agency coming in, kind of throwing its weight around. I don't think people recall at the time in 2015, um, Coinbase is now one of the biggest companies in the space. And we're going to talk about Coinbase some more, believe me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But at the time, right, uh, Coinbase had only raised up to uh, Series A funding. They're still fairly small. There were about, at this time, I think 100 people who worked at Coinbase. Um, So this was a small company. They didn't have the resources that a Google or an Apple has where they can defend um, the gov- against the government going fishing or requesting an unreasonable amount Wait, of... Wait, when has Google ever done that, Melta? Well... That's only Apple. <laughs> I will get into this some more as well. But but look, I think um, what's, what's interesting to note here is 
back in 2015, 2016, there were a lot of um, exchanges and a lot of platforms that pushed back. And again, I think Kraken is another great example. So Kraken, um, their CEO, Jesse Powell, you know, to his own detriment in some cases, um, has repeatedly resisted phishing requests from governments. Um, most specifically, I think the point, most poignant example for me was um, when New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who later was, uh, you know, embroiled in his own scandals. But when he sent out a request to nine different cryptocurrency exchanges, basically requesting all sorts of competitive data, uh, Jesse said, absolutely not. I'm not giving you anything. And so Eric Schneiderman said, um, you know, you are in contempt of the New York attorney general. And basically Kraken said, look, we're not going to play ball. This is insane. This is totally in breach of what is permissible and acceptable under U.S. law. So I think there's been a long record of companies in the crypto space being pressured by governments, regulators, etc. And there has also been a long history of many of those companies trying to resist what we found, though, is companies, especially companies like Shapeshift, they ultimately uh, do crater to the pressure because it's very expensive, it's reputationally damaging, and the IRS and the government can really make your life miserable. Look, what this all comes down to is right now, every startup in the crypto space wants to be quote unquote institutional. Every founder um, aspires to be Google or Facebook or Amazon serving up all sorts of data despite uh, mockingly using the mantra, do no evil. Um, and I really enjoy the phrase Zuckspiration, which some people have Who used. says that? Oh my God. It, it's in these Telegram chats where we're talking about um, the behavior of certain founders and like me. being in the investing space um, for the last five years. I think it's funny, you know, there are founders I've run into who talk to me about their wardrobe and how they dress like Steve Jobs because Kurnos. <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. Anyways, um, do you know what really just grinds my gears? What? So hard. What? There is nothing new under the sun. We say this all the time. There is literally nothing new under the sun at all. All of these innovative crypto business models, all of these innovative new things, they quickly become surveillance capitalism companies. So we've talked a lot in this episode about how I at least personally don't have a problem with a lot of these things that have actually happened. But what I have a problem with is the capability that these companies, and in some cases, these governments, in many cases, these governments are amassing in the worst case scenario, in situations where there are human rights abuses going on, uh, where there are very limited freedoms. And this all becomes relevant to the crypto space because just two weeks ago, Coinbase proudly announced that they had acquired a company called Neutrino. Neutrino is a company that provides forensic analytics tools to link real people to their crypto transactions. So again, remember how we talked about how Bitcoin is not actually anonymous, it's pseudonymous, and there are these tool sets out there that can be used, some of them as simple as just using a block explorer to de-anonymize the blockchain. But Jill, Neutrino I'll, I'll is one of those tool sets. But I'll add here, this isn't novel in any way. Um, Every exchange pretty much that operates in a country with regulation and reporting That's right. uses a tool like this, That's has right. a contract with Chainalysis or Elliptic or another service. So this in and of itself isn't the issue. But the issue comes back to the worst case scenario. And the founders of Neutrino actually have a history with this worst case scenario of situations where freedoms are limited and human rights abuses are taking place. The founders of Neutrino previously founded a company that installed malware and surveilled political dissidents in countries like Sudan and the UAE. It was called Hacking Team. And if you want to read more about it, there are dozens of in-depth pieces that cover that story. But it's pretty flagrant and egregious and really, to me, sums up a lot of what that worst case scenario looks like. Now, again, as you say, there's nothing really new about an exchange using surveillance tools. There's nothing new about Bitcoin de-anonymization. But what is notable about this was the way that Coinbase announced it and the seeming disregard for the history of the founders in aiding and abetting these states that have a disregard for human rights. But Jill, it's not just aiding and abetting, right? This 
this team of people, the company they previously founded was investigated by a UN commission for committing crimes against humanity and war crimes. Okay, there is a big difference between saying, hey, we're going to use these monitoring tools because they help us be more compliant and reach more people and commercialize Bitcoin and make it easier for people to buy cryptocurrencies. And let's be completely transparent here. If you look at Coinbase now versus who they were four years ago, their whole thing now is they want people to buy and sell. And really their tools are for speculation using cryptocurrencies. And eventually maybe it'll be for transacting, you know, doing payments with cryptocurrencies. They're not freedom fighters. They're, you know, very decidedly non-cypherpunk. But what I think is insane is saying, hey, we see no issue in Coinbase after they were questioned about this. We're like, yeah, we have no issue with their past. We did our due diligence and we know all about it. And, you know, we don't think it's important. And we think their tech is great. That to me is um, like such cognitive dissonance. And there's there's this platitude, right, about how your company's culture is who you hire, fire, and promote. Well, your company's culture is also who you acquire. And in this case, I'm not sure what this acquire says about Coinbase's culture and their mission and their future. But look, at the end of the day, as we've seen with Facebook and Uber and platforms that have behaved in ways that their users, you know, don't find acceptable, is users have freedom of choice. And so um, there was a campaign that was started. Pardon? You vote with your feet. Exactly. Right. So there's a campaign that was started called hashtag delete Coinbase. Um, I myself haven't used Coinbase in probably two years. Um, it was really useful back in 2014 when it was one of the only on-ramps that made me feel secure. Right. There was this trust component, like instead of sending money to a Japanese bank and <laughs> hoping you got your coins from Gox, mm -hmm. you now had Coinbase, which is a U.S. company with reputable venture investors. It had U.S. bank accounts. Like you felt some modicum of trust. Um, now people are saying, look, we don't value that trust because the trade-off, the price is too high. So hashtag delete Coinbase was a thing. I finally deleted after years of not using my account. I finally just went ahead and deleted the whole thing when I got the confirmation email. Felt really good. Really good. Wow. Good job, Meltem. I'll be honest. I've, I've not deleted my Coinbase account. There's nothing in it, but I have not deleted it yet. I feel a little bit about it the way that I feel about Facebook, where sure. it's something that I, I don't use much at all, but I, I just kind of can't be bothered to delete it for fear that I am going to lose out on something in the future or else lose out on owning my own data from my historical, in the case of Coinbase transactions, or in the case of Facebook interactions. But yeah, but look, I'm here's, over the, it. <laughs> here's the thing I want to talk about, right? Is um, a bunch of people when this this conversation was raging on crypto Twitter, and um, yes, crypto Twitter is kind of a weird place. We all know that. But what I think is so interesting is people's reaction to delete Coinbase or comments I was making about privacy was, "Well, I don't have anything to hide. What are you hiding? Like, why do you need privacy?" And I think that's actually a notion we need to dispel. Is it's not about hiding. I would say I'm an exceptionally transparent and like out there person where I share most of what's just going check, on. Just check Milton's Instagram if you don't believe <laughs> like, her. I just, I, I, sh I don't, it's not about hiding, but what it is about is I don't need my private information out there. I want to go back to what we talked about. I believe that I'm entitled as a human to have privacy and communication when I seek it. So when I want to engage, engage publicly, I'm on Twitter. Like I use it as a way to have conversations with people in an open space so other people can see what we're talking about and like add to it. And that's a real-time conversation, same premise as Reddit. But when I want secure private communications, I have that right. I want privacy in my movement. I don't mind, you know, sometimes you're somewhere and you tag it in Instagram or on Facebook or you'll say like, oh, I'm here or, oh, here's a picture of me in this location. But I want to have privacy when I move around so I can take steps to guarantee that. I want privacy in some transactions. It's not because I'm doing illicit things. It's just because I don't necessarily want all of this data linked together and utilized in ways that I don't consent to. Girls so just want to have hiding. privacy. 
I like that. Girls just want to have privacy. <laughs> Girls just want to have encrypted end-to-end communications. Okay, but here's here's where I want to um, also just kind of draw this parallel. So if we look at 2013, again, if we go back to what happened with Snowden. So Edward Snowden really saw this information. He, um, you know, the U.S. is obviously furious. A lot of the information he revealed could be constituted as treason because it exposed private information. See, this is what's so ironic. The government's entitled to have privacy, but nobody else's. I think that's a really messed up dynamic, by the way. But um, so the government's trying to find a way to get Snowden. Snowden's since fled the country. He can't be extradited and brought back to be tried. So there was this... um, this company called LavaBit, right? And I think the LavaBit example is going to highlight a choice that I think a lot of companies may have to make in the future. So LavaBit was an encrypted email service um, that was used in you know the 2010s, and um, it happened to be a service that they thought Snowden might be using. So they were asked, this company LavaBit, in 2013 to turn over their SSL private keys, so their uh, secure socket layer private keys, to the U.S. government so that they could read Edward Snowden's emails by decrypting and reading all of the messages going through this platform, and those of any of their 400,000 customers, by the way. Because once you turn over a private key and you allow someone to decrypt something, you don't just get one record. You get everything that was encrypted with that key. So the firm, right, was founded by someone who is decidedly cypherpunk. And he said, look, instead of complying with this, I'm shutting down the company. And there was a court fight about it, but he basically decided, um, I, I'm not going to compromise or violate the trust of my users who were using the service because of this encryption component, because of a guarantee of strong privacy. And here's the question I think everyone should ask themselves as they start using products and services in the Bitcoin space, but even beyond the Bitcoin and crypto space, just more broadly. Do you trust that your Bitcoin service provider would do the same to protect the social contract they have with you? That's the question I'm asking. And a lot of it comes down to resources. You know, we have more uh, recent examples like Apple refusing to unlock the iPhone in the FBI case uh, mm-hmm. around the San Bernardino San Bernardino shootings. Um, it, you know, it, it's not it's not always just the sort of crazy out there cypherpunks who are fighting for this this cause and and defending civil liberties and and rights around privacy. Sometimes it's people as mainstream as Apple, but far more often, I would say, companies and individuals along the lines of Apple are actually the ones who are kind of the biggest perpetrators of enabling that surveillance. And an example of this that I want to talk about is Facebook. And I'm not just talking about the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. I'm not just talking about Facebook, you know, harnessing your data and selling it off uh, or not selling your data, but using your data to attract advertisers, et cetera. But now I'm talking about something called, I like to call Facecoin or Zuckbucks, which is Facebook's foray <laughs> into the cryptocurrency world. Oh, good God. I want Before we get into that, I do think it's really ironic that for a community of people who started with beliefs around privacy and fundamental rights, the things that people in the crypto community talk about, you know, as the catalyst for like the next big things, Facecoin, JP Morgan coin, stable coins that are controlled by a central entity and irredeemable, ICE-owned exchanges, i.e. backed, um, Fidelity own wallets. Like these things are all highly, highly centralized. These things are antithetical in so many ways to where we started. So I just find it kind of deliciously ironic, but in a way also a little sad. Yeah, indeed. And so let's dive in for a second to Facecoin. And we could probably do a whole episode on this because it really grinds my gears. Earlier this week, Nathaniel Popper, who I think is one of the better journalists in the space, published an article exposing some of the details of what Facebook is planning around a new financial system. I hesitate to call it a blockchain project or, you know, God forbid, a cryptocurrency project because I'm skeptical that that's really what this is going to be. But Facebook is apparently planning to release its own version of a stable coin that will be pegged to something like the SDR to a basket of currencies uh, that will be listed on centralized cryptocurrency exchanges and that will be usable within WhatsApp. 
Now, again, WhatsApp, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the most used applications, if not the most used phone application in the world. So distribution on this thing is massive out of the gates. Now, why is that scary? That's scary because Facebook already owns all of your online interactions. So much of your data, so much of your communications of what you do happens through a Facebook-owned platform, whether that's Facebook itself, Instagram, or WhatsApp. And this now is creating an avenue for them to not only own your interactions, but also own data around your transactions. And by the way, Jill, what you talked about, so Facebook itself, Facebook owns your relationships, your communications, um, your history with people in digital space, right? Uh, Facebook owns your communications through WhatsApp, as we mentioned. WhatsApp's one of the most widely used messaging platforms in the world, and they own um, photos, memories, experiences, curation through Instagram. Um, so what I think is really interesting is we think about the three types of privacy, privacy and movement, privacy and economic transactions, and privacy um, and communications. They basically own all of that. (laughs) And, you know, I think that, I think that Alex Stamos, who was the former uh, chief security officer of Facebook, he, he posted a take on Facecoin when, when Nate Popper's article came out earlier this week. And I think that the most important point that he made is that there's no precedent for this and that Facebook really ought to start public discussions around the trade-offs of strong privacy guarantees versus having a centralized entity that is regulated and compliant and so on, owning all of this financial data. They should start that public discussion openly, early, and it seems like they're instead they're doing the exact opposite. Part of what uh, Nathaniel detailed in his article is that even within Facebook, it's uh, this team is cordoned off, it's siloed from other teams within the company. No one really knows what's going on with it. They have separate key cards. They're in a different building. And they also have, most importantly, billions of dollars at their disposal. Yep. And here's, here's again, look, I... <sighs> To me, Facecoin has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. It has nothing to do with what this community is about. To me, JP Morgan coin, nothing to do with it. Um, Line, which is another popular messaging app, is going to have its own token wallet embedded, nothing to do with crypto. Um, Telegram, right, uh, which is a messaging service that's featured around, you know, is focused on pardon, a strong encryption, um, privacy, et cetera. Telegram did this $2 billion ICO to give it resources to develop its own token. Um, so a signal even, right? So Whisper Systems, Mobile they're, yeah. right, they're trying to raise money using a, a coin. So look, I do think part of this tension we're dealing with is increasingly, you know, um, we're seeing the digitization of everything. And what's interesting is with blockchains and tokens and cryptocurrencies, we're seeing the financialization of everything. And if you think about the business model for surveillance capitalism, actually, if you embed a token into these systems, um, what you're doing is you're enabling the financialization of human behavior in an entirely novel and new way. And this is unprecedented ground to your point. It's something we haven't really seen before. There are a tremendous number of ethical implications. There are a tremendous number of implications around how these systems are going to interact with the rule of law, are going to interact with uh, contracts, how they're going to, you know, interact with the way consent has historically worked. But I think, again, what troubles me is right now these conversations are about engineers and tech people sitting in a room. Like, that's totally the wrong approach. They're profound ethical implications here that need to be discussed and it needs to be a multidisciplinary approach because otherwise like technology is a tool that can be used for good or bad but if technology and systems aren't designed by people who understand ethics and behavioral economics and some of these fundamental challenges these systems are going to be so rife for abuse and are going to have fundamental unintended consequences that could materially change the shape of the future for every person on this planet it reminds me a lot of an article that i read uh, from i believe a theoretical physics phd student about how 
a large part of his studies were actually around ethics. Because ever since Oppenheimer, ever since the invention of nuclear weaponry, and in particular, ever since the dropping of nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that has been valued ethics and uh, moral implications of the technology that physicists create has been valued as a core part of that discipline. And it strikes me that we would be remiss as an industry not to hold those same values in mind as we're creating technology tools that have massive human rights implications. But Jill, this is this is the fundamental tension, right? And this is actually so when I was at MIT, there was this initiative that was started called Science for Social Good. Most people may not know that the majority of research labs at MIT and actually many other universities are funded by DARPA and the Department of Energy. Right. And so these are, you know, they're profound questions you start to ask yourself when your research is going to be monetized and utilized by covert branches of the government, by private corporations that have a history of human rights abuses or crimes against humanity. And look, these things are, um, they're very difficult because they're not black and white. Right. And like programming and math, things are black and white. It's like it's one or zero. Zero is one, zero is ones. Here, things are very gray. Um, And so that's just what I think about is that fundamental tension between capitalism making money. And look, capitalism is not a bad thing. (laughs) It's a great thing in many ways. It has created a lot of growth in our world. It's lifted a lot of people out of poverty. It's what makes a lot of these things possible. But we also have to be cognizant of the impacts of these things. But instead of being all doom and gloom, let's bring in some sunshine. What do you say? Yeah, we're not going straight to hell in a handbasket, are we? (laughs) Okay, so before we leave everyone listening to this in a pit of despair, (laughs) anxiously uh, checking their phones, deleting apps, disabling location services, I want to talk about the positive. Um, I think one of the key things here is this really is partially about education. A lot of these issues are really complex, but I think there are great resources we have for people to just learn more. And this is really all about people making informed decisions. I think for a lot of users, for example, with Coinbase and Facebook, they may decide that the trade-offs they're making are totally worth it to them personally. And no judgments there. But I think, again, the key thing I'm here- it, but- <laughs> ju- That's fine. But look, it's all about being informed and giving informed consent. Um, I think about you know the medical field, the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take. It's all about informed consent and um, just enabling people to make decisions for themselves using- a uh, set of information that they can comprehend um, to make that decision. So let's talk about these companies and products in the space um, that are not engaging in surveillance capitalism in the pursuit of Forbes covers and CNBC appearances. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that Brave is a great example of this uh, with strong privacy guarantees. It's a great product. It's a great browser. Um, I've switched over to it. Many people I know, even outside of the cryptocurrency or internet infosec space, have switched over to it just because it's it's a decent product that, again, like WhatsApp in a lot of ways. Has- I don't know why it needs a token, but I think the browser itself, the team, by the way, a lot of people don't appreciate the team that Brave has. They're some of the most experienced people in um, browser built technology, privacy preserving technology. So I think the browser product itself, absent of this token ad stuff they're trying to do, the browser itself is really, really great tool. And another thing people don't appreciate is Brave has actually been really involved in lobbying for stronger privacy regulation in the U.S., which I think is a really, really great thing to see. Completely. Uh, Another product that, uh, you know, I'm not, I can't speak to the token element of it yet, but is Signal, right? A lot of mainstream people, whether they're journalists, uh, whether they're dissidents, whether they're just people who think it's kind of cool and it's like a personal branding or, thing. Or whether it's you and me, Jill, we, we use Signal. I've <laughs> switched over to Signal, even outside of the cryptocurrency world, though, and I find that really heartening. Right. And there are a lot of great products and, and teams within the cryptocurrency space specifically as well that are working hard on these types of tools and products. So I think Brave is a great example of privacy in search, right? So being able to have privacy when you're browsing. So a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I'm using like the private browsing mode. I'm like, no, 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 just 
just use a different browser. So um, there's Brave, there's others well outside the crypto space. Privacy and communications, we have Signal, we have Wire, we have a number of apps that are focused on encrypted private communication um, run by teams, by the way, who are largely decentralized, quote unquote, where it's just more difficult for governments to coordinate attacks against these companies mm-hmm. or seize data. I think that's really important. Um, I personally have been really involved in a company called Casa. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in the company. I'm a client of their services. Um, but what they've done is created this piece of hardware. It's a, a lightning node that allows you to push transactions to Bitcoin network. But more importantly, they have a lot of software. They recently um, added a Chrome browser extension, and they just announced their whole sovereignty as a service um, vision, which I think is pretty interesting. I have a lot of work to do, but one of the things that um, they recently announced is they're not applying any analytics to their customer base. Um, they're not going to be using standard suites of analytics tools because the thing they value most as a company is their users' privacy. I think that's really heartening. I, I think that to to zoom out, just I'm just thinking about this as you're talking, but part of the reason why business models can be so tricky in cryptocurrency and why it's so hard to find viable business models for a lot of these projects, protocols, whatever it is, is because they're not engaging in surveillance capitalism. So I'm thinking about non-custodial wallets, non-custodial exchanges, DEXs, the whole DeFi ecosystem. Most of the products and tools that exist in that space are uninvestable. Ariana Simpson made this really great point on Twitter a few weeks ago that Uniswap, for example, there's no way to invest. And I look at it and I'm like, is is there like a real viable business model here? Maybe taking transaction fees for some of these companies and projects, but they're not engaging in surveillance capitalism in the way that most internet companies are. But let's go back a step. And this goes back to like, I think we live in this, we, you and I rant about this. This is the thing that grinds both our gears. We live in this world of like TechCrunch founder and VC worship, where we have been led to believe that the only way to start a successful company is to raise a ton of money from all these big name VCs and to be like out there at all these conferences and do the whole super expensive venture backed startup thing. In reality, most businesses don't need venture funding. This is what I've been working on. We had this whole episode on finance financing models, um, episode six, where look, there are companies that maybe don't need venture funding. Maybe it's a group of users who value their privacy, who pay for the service. Maybe it's a service that generates a revenue stream. Maybe it's funded through charitable donations. Maybe it's funded in more of a cooperative structure. Maybe it's funded by a local municipality who wants to build a reputation for being a place where its citizens can engage in private uh, commerce and private transactions. Like we just, I feel like we lack creativity. Completely. There are all kinds of ways to get creative with it. But to me, fundamentally the point, and I guess part of the point of this episode is that cryptocurrency is about freedom. It's not about creating a new revenue stream for Wall Street or delivering big IPO returns to investors. It's not about surveillance capitalism, which so many of the companies and the business models that we're accustomed to looking at engage in. But crypto is also about choice, right? So what's interesting is I was posting some things about privacy on Twitter this week, and a lot of people reacted negatively, and they were like, hey, I want to make money using crypto. I really don't care about privacy. And that's fine. So you have your choice and you can choose products and services and things that align with that view. But for me, it's about choice. And I can choose to invest in things and use things and talk about things and educate people about products and services that enable privacy. To me, it's not about creating this dystopian corporate digital currency world where we have all these private blockchains so you can guzzle your Starbucks with piles of debt in your pocket while you mainline in Facebook and Instagram like just a human click farm so they can sell data. Look, it's not going to be easy, but I think it's so worth it. And I'll just say this, if you're feeling fired up at the end of listening to this episode because you care about your freedom on the internet, you care about your financial freedom, go to the EFF website, EFF.org, and make a donation because they do some of the best work around defending digital privacy, free speech, and innovation. Again, EFF.org. 
We'll also link some resources in the show notes, which you can find on Medium. And I'll just say, in the words of Benjamin Franklin, they who give up essential liberty to attain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. So if Ben Franklin figured this out in the 1800s, I think we can do a better job in the year 2019 with all of the access to information we have, all of the tools we have at our disposal to just be smarter about how we choose what to do and what to engage with. And remember, we're watching. Hey, this is Jill and Meltem. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.